Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. This episode of Coin Flips and Controversies is sponsored by ICJR, the annual revision hip and knee course taking place this June in Rochester, Minnesota. At this time, we will hand it over to the webinar faculty. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to this webinar hosted by ICJR as well as OrthoBullets. My name is Matt Abdel from the Mayo Clinic, and I have an expert group of faculty with me, including Dr. Michael Meningini and Dr. Brian Springer, whom I'll allow to introduce themselves. Brian, maybe we'll start with you, please. Sure. Thanks, Matt. I uh, appreciate you hosting this, and thanks to ICJR and OrthoBullets for allowing us to do it. Uh, Brian Springer, I'm a hip and knee surgeon at OrthoCarolina in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks, Brian. Michael. Yeah, Michael Meneghini from Indiana. Again, thanks to OrthoBullets and ICJR. Uh, I think it's a great topic. Thanks, Matt, for putting it together and excited for the discussion that's going to ensue. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you both for being here. As both uh, Dr. Meneghini and Dr. Springer highlighted, we do have an ICGR revision course at the Mayo Clinic Rochester, Minnesota, June 16th through 18th, in which we'll highlight some of the revision topics, including one that we're going to talk about in this particular case, which I'm going to tell the group right off the bat is an extensor mechanism disruption. It's a patient of mine. And for the webinar and the participants and those who view it, what we'll do is we'll go over the case. I'll ask Dr. Managini, Dr. Springer, what they would do from all the way from non-operative to operative. We'll have some poll questions and then we'll look at interoperative pictures and x-rays of that. So gentlemen, if that sounds good, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of present the case to you and we'll have a dynamic discussion over this case. So as mentioned, this was a patient of mine. She was referred in. It's a 61-year-old female. She came in with left knee pain. She had a primary total knee arthroplasty, completed outside institution in December of 2010. And 10 years later, had the acute onset of pain. This was after a fall in March of 2020. Uh, as you might think, March 2020 is kind of when the pandemic starts setting in and hospitals start shut down. So she was actually the first patient deferred after this particular injury when most of the practice ramped down. She's now debilitated by the time the practice opens up and cannot walk. On physical exam, she's got an effusion, diffuse tenderness palpation. She's got good motion, but a huge extensor lag and a palpable defect on exam. She now has a globally unstable knee. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the labs here. Her ESR is five at Mayo Clinic, kind of zero to 30 is normal, so low. And her CRP is elevated. Our normal is less than eight, so it's on the higher end, but normal. Aspiration, 163 cells, 41% neutrophils, and the cultures are negative to date. So um, I'm going to present the x-rays, and I think it might be helpful, Brian and Michael, for me to present the x-rays, and then we can go back to the germane one. So I'm just going to present them, and just for some of our listeners who are only listening to this and not seeing it, I'll just go ahead and tell you that I'm looking at a long-leg radiograph. The patient has an osteoarthritic right knee, and on the left, we could see a relatively neutral, neutrally, maybe a touch of valgus, mechanically aligned knee. This next radiograph is an AP radiograph in which the femoral component looks uh, strange for how the patient is standing for this particular radiograph. Again, the tibia looks like it's in valgus. And then the, this is a direct lateral radiograph that I'm showing the panelist here. This is a CR knee 
with what appears to be an extensor mechanism disruption with something in the soft tissues that looks a little funny. And then now emergent radiograph here, which you can see the degenerative arthritis in the contralateral right knee that we're not talking about. And then the left knee, the one we're talking about here. So uh, Michael, you're first on my screen. Maybe I'll just go right to you and ask you kind of what, what you're seeing on these x-rays, what you're concerned about, what you're thinking. Tell me which x-ray you want me to click to and I could show that to the group. Yeah, thanks, Matt. So this is not an uncommon scenario. You got the obese female, maybe a little bit smaller stature. This is the patient who it's not uncommon for us to see these extensor mechanism disruptions. A mm -hmm. lot of force across small, sometimes bone. The patella has been resurfaced. So this is not an uncommon scenario of the extensor mechanisms we see that are chronically disrupted. If you don't mind, go to the long leg mechanical yeah. axis view. And I would notice a couple points here about the x-rays, especially when, when we move down a couple steps about whether this is operative or not. Some things you want to really scrutinize when you're looking at either considering doing an isolated extensor mechanism repair versus a full revision. You want to really be critical of the component position in addition on physical examination. Now, you've ruled out infection appropriately. CRP yep. was elevated, not dramatically. Aspiration was normal. So we can really safely assume at this point you have an obese female, chronic extensor mechanism disruption. On the x-rays, you see what is most likely cement adhered to the patella component. So a free-floating patella component appears and a complete disruption attached to maybe a small inferior fragment. But then you've got the big superior patella migrated proximally. So clear, you know, with your exam, a palpable defect. It appears you see the patella component with the lucency attached to a very small fragment below. I suspect that when you open the arthrotomy or open the incision, you're going to see the patella button. So this in my hands is a chronic patella tendon, inferior pole patella, extensor mechanism disruption. So this is going to be a reconstruction with augmentation, not a direct repair. The repairs in this setting have been fraught with failures. So I'm thinking at this point, extensor mechanism reconstruction with something either we can, talk, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it. Something like artificial mesh versus extensor mechanism allograft. We'll get into that, I'm sure, shortly. But that's sort of where I'm at looking at what you've shown me with the radiographs in history at this point. And I'm sure we'll also get into whether or not to revise the prosthesis as well. Yeah, Michael, uh, spoken like a true expert. Thank you. You've hit uh, several of the points. And then, uh, Brian, I've got several questions for you on stuff Michael said, but a couple other things. So number one, and I want to ask both of you kind of what's your workflow in a failed total knee for any indication? Do you get a long leg radiograph, Michael and Brian? Do you both get that to look at the hip and look at alignment? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Matt. Yeah, I I'm personally, I do. Um, you know, it's very easy for us to get them in our clinic. Um, I think it gives me uh, several important features. One as is outlined here now, just a general gestalt about their overall alignment. Mm -hmm. It allows me to look a little bit more closely about the coronal position of their femoral component, of their tibial component. And it gives me a free picture of their hip and also any potential deformity that could be in between there that I may have been missing for some other reason, along with you know that long alignment of the tibia as well, which may come into play if you're going to be revising components and using longer press fit stems, you know, things along those lines, I think it's important to know what that overall anatomy is of the entire femur and the tibia. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Brian, on all those points. Michael, any anything else that you would say on the long leg or the series of radiographs that you get in a failed or a painful total knee referred to you? No, I, I think it depends on the nature. I mean, this is a pretty specific problem. I think it's important if you're looking, we do a fair amount of uncemented knees now. So it's important to get really good x-rays on the painful knee replacement that might be uncemented, really good views of the interfaces. But to be honest with you, that's really cemented or cementless, but really getting good views of the interfaces on a painful total knee is critical. Yep. So you're not getting really oblique views. Don't hesitate to send them back to the x-ray if they come back where you can't evaluate those. And I really want to give this a good, I, I find that the lateral view really provides a tremendous amount of value, even more than the mechanical sometimes, because you're looking at things like you discover here. Plus, when you look at one of our leading cause of revisions, flexion instability, you're looking at things like restoration of the posterior femoral condylar offset, tibial slope, femoral size, distalization, et cetera. So I think the lateral view is critical and then always get a merchant or patellofemoral view. Yeah, excellent. And that's why I specifically selected these four radiographs only to uh, to show in this particular one. We actually had some other x-rays because I ended up getting, she had a little bit of pain in the groin, so I ended up getting actually dedicated lift x-rays, which weren't as bad as I initially kind of thought on those screening x-rays, as Brian pointed out. So, but these are kind of my four minimal x-rays in a painful knee. Brian, Michael uh, started going down a little bit of the path on position of components, constraint yeah. of the current components. And that's why I pulled up this lateral. Maybe your thoughts on, even if they didn't have an extensor mechanism disruption, what your thoughts are on the condor offset here, the slope, the constraint. I told you she's got global instability on my exam. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. I think I want to, you know, I want to emphasize the point that you alluded to earlier and Michael emphasized it, which is oftentimes in these situations where these patients have these catastrophic injuries, such as an extensor mechanism disruption, all your attention tends to zone in on that, yep. right? And that's all you're thinking about and how big of a reconstruction this is going to be and what a big deal it's going to be. And you may miss some subtle things in here that may affect your success of your subsequent reconstruction, like what Michael alluded to earlier, which is component malposition. Now, this one's, you know, 10 plus years out from our initial reconstruction, but oftentimes you may see these things early. And if you don't address some of the early issues, component malrotation, things along those lines, you may actually diminish your success on those, on those reconstructions. So I think emphasizing the point of being careful not to so zone in on one area, right? It's like someone that comes in with recurrent dislocations and you miss the fact that they have an infection, right? Because yep. you're so worried about their, dis this is the same thing. You're so focused on the extensor mechanism, you know, you may miss the subtleties here, like it's a cruciate retaining knee, right? How yep. well do those do when you have an extensor mechanism disruption? You have to repair it because of the stress that's put on the PCL, you know, down the line. The challenge I find with some of these is this issue of instability when you have an extensor mechanism disruption, because in my experience, they all feel unstable once they've disrupted their extensor mechanism, you know, particularly in flexion you know, when you examine in the, in the office. And so trying to make that decision as to whether or not you are going to revise the components or not, I think, and we'll probably talk about this, is a really big deal. I think I've changed in my evolution of practice to trying not to touch them, to having a lower threshold for actually revising components mm -hmm. as part of the extensor mechanism procedure now. And that's something that's changed for me, I would say, you know, within the last four or five years. 
Yeah, I think I, I think I've evolved in that direction. And Michael, you probably have as well, kind of evolved to thinking that extensor mechanism is typically the actually the best constraint we have in the knee. And once it's disrupted, we've lost the best flexion stabilizer and probably entire knee stabilizer that's yeah. present. Would you agree, Michael and, and Brian? Yeah, I don't think that's, I, I think we continue to learn. As the three of us has noted probably uh, anecdotally, it's certainly to your point, Matt, the extensor mechanism does impart a tremendous amount of stability. You know, I think that if it's, if it's a true chronic, something done in the past, I'm more apt to revise them, revise all the components. If it's one that I've done, and there've been a handful, I've done the primary, it's been a short time after, they've had a fall, traumatic, something along those lines. That's been rare, thank goodness, but I've had a, I've had a couple. I've tended to leave those. Now, I don't know whether that's gonna be good in the long term, but because I felt like I did the knee, it was really balanced inflection. I really evaluated that at the time of the Marlex mesh reconstruction. I'm getting, giving away my bias here, but then I would tend to make sure those are really tight in flexion. I'd be okay with it. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but the majority of these, to your point, Matt, when you get in there and you look at them in flexion, you really got to take a calm, get in there and really make sure, because many of them you may think are balanced in flexion. They're truly not. The overwhelming majority, I would say that now, I don't have the specific numbers you probably do from the Mayo data. The overwhelming majority, we're going to revise the implants. And if you look at the mechanical axis in this, you've got a, a femur that's in pretty significant varus. Go back yep. to the mechanical. Yeah. Look at how much, I mean, that, if you draw that line, that's going right out the trochanter. And then you've got a, a tibia that's in a fair amount of valgus. Yep. You look at all of our data, those patients do the worst unless they're true. They start off as true valgus knees. But that is a knee that that patient not, probably hasn't liked, quite frankly, and doesn't have optimal biomechanics the entire time. So I, this is one I would, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it in more detail, but this is one I would revise all the components for sure. Yep, I think that's right. So, you know, if I look at this one, I said, okay, the femur's in varus, the tibia's in valgus. And then I went to this x-ray, I said, okay, yep, both of the coronal alignment issues. And I also thought, well, this is a so-called Arlen Hansen double bubble in which it mm -hmm. appeared that there was inadequate distal femoral resection. So now I'm up to just on AP radiographs, three things I'm pretty unhappy with in this one. And then I get to this lateral and I say, okay, I've got a cruciate retaining knee as Brian pointed out earlier. I think there's some flexion in there. I think the condor offset's not reproduced. I'd have to get the preoperative x-rays. And naturally with the CR knee, but if I, I kind of zoomed in for the sake of this talk, but if I give you more of the tibia, you'd see that it's actually in about 11 degrees of posterior tibial slope. So all of a sudden I start adding all those things up and I say, hey, I'm really sensitive about keeping this knee, even if it wasn't an extensor mechanism disruption, right? Even if they just came yeah. in with some instability. Would you agree with that, Brian? Yeah, I think those are those are all good points. I mean, you, know, you could easily get a lateral over other over other knee and look at her posterior condylar offset. I agree. I think it looks, it looks a little bit, you know, diminished the slope. I absolutely agree with. Right. So she's got other reasons to be unstable. No, no question about it. It's the, you know, it's the typical mistake where they probably didn't resect enough distal femur, didn't yep. want to leave them with a flexion contracture, thinner poly flexion instability combined with all these other things that you mentioned. So this is a, Matt, this is such a great example of you know, making sure you're critically looking at your x-rays and not just focusing on the extensor. 
Michael, let me ask you before we move on, and then I want to get to a bowl question here, and then we'll kind of we'll get into the meat of this. But I think it's so important, as Brian just said, to critically critically evaluate the X-rays in the best interest of the patient, not to be judgmental of someone else or even ourselves, but in the best interest of the patient. Are you bothered that it seems like the patella is under duress? Besides the fact that there's an extensor mechanism disruption, why would that patellar button shear off like that? Are you rota- rotational things, AVN, do those those kind of things bother you? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 easy to be the armchair quarterback on these images. I would love to see your point, Matt, earlier. Let's, I mean, if I had the pre-op and I had the near-term post-op, I would feel a little bit better about making judgment on this. And of course, in this catastrophic failure X-ray, it's hard to it's hard to tell. You know, I think that there's a good chance that patellofemoral mechanics were not ideal. And that could be from a whole host of reasons. Not least important would be just flexion instability and all the stresses that flexion instability imparts on the extensor mechanism that we know now, and and we know now more than we used to. In addition to component malrotation, potentially, you know, I don't find it as common. Uh, I'll be quite honest. We make a huge academic point about femoral component rotation, but if you look at the true data around it, it's really weak. And I think as long as you do three degrees on a varus knee, five degrees in a valgus, I don't get all hung up on the rest of it because a lot of it is soft tissue and balancing the knee. And if that works in the good femoral design, it works really well. Uh, I think there's a lot of other things that contribute to patellofemoral mechanics. And I think the flexion instability is a thing that we've been overlooking for 20 some years and talking about other things when really it's, it's a flexion instability. The tibiofemoral stability is critical. As you mentioned, Matt, earlier, they're so intimately related the extensor mechanism and the stability of the tibiofemoral joint. I think we overlooked that. It's more complicated than we think. Yeah. I think that's right, Michael. And then the other thing I always look at is, for instance, you can see the subluxation and tilt of the of her native contralateral side. And so oh, yeah. kind of the native femoral <laughs> trochlear patellar anatomy and how the resurfacing was done in itself may contribute to this over uh, this process. She, she obviously was traumatic, but just trying to get everything out of how this yep. might've happened at nine, 10 years probably plays into it. So well, if you don't um, do that surgery, right to your point, Matt, if you don't, if you don't address that patella yep, needs right to here. be addressed, addressed properly, if let's assume she was bilateral, that patella needs to be addressed at the time of the primary arthroplasty appropriately. And it's yep. making sure you got good tibial femoral balance, but then also making sure that you do potentially taking off that lateral osteophyte, centralizing everything, a measured resection that's, if you're going to resurface it, equilateral in all four quadrants, making sure it's well-balanced. Because if you don't, you're going to have exactly the scenario that you alluded to. Yep. That's exactly kind of my thoughts here. So Brian, let's move forward and let's do, let's kind of get into the meat of it. I think we've done a a really good job and thank you both for interrogating those x-rays and thoughtfully giving me your expert advice, which is based upon high level evidence that you all have contributed to. Um, We've got four poll questions and we've kind of put them right in the middle here for the meat of it. And Brian, I'll start with you and then I'll have Michael weigh in and then we'll alternate for the four and we'll kind of get the input of you two experts. And then we'll take that and I'm going to show you what I did with several interoperative pictures and some post-operative radiographs Then we can maybe discuss a little bit of literature with it. So Brian, the the first poll question here, I want to ask uh, you and then we'll go to Michael and then I'm going to show you what so far, nearly uh, 500 people have uh, done on orthobullets for this poll. And this is one of the cases we'll present at the revision course just next week, is if you do choose an extension mechanism reconstruction, I'm untethering this from the components now, just if you're gonna do an extension mechanism re- reconstruction, sure. 
what technique would you use? And there's a variety of options here, but what would you use and why? Yeah. So thank you. It's uh, I, I've evolved over time, you know, with this and looking at all these options here, I would say the first probably I've been in practice 16, 17 years now, I would say the first probably five to seven years of my practice, I was absolutely using whole extensor mechanism allografts. So, you know, we would get the whole proximal tibia, we would measure out the bone block, you would have the patellar tendon, the patella and the quad tendon, you had to order it in, you had to inspect it, you had to make sure it was, you know, the right length of the quad tendon, mm -hmm. the patellar tendon that you were getting a left side, not a right side. So it, it was a lot of work, you know, it was a lot of work preoperatively. And it was a lot of work intraoperatively. You know, we found that with most of these over time, you did them best with two surgical teams, right? One working on the back table, preparing the allograft and one working on the patient, preparing the trough and things along those lines. And I think as, you know, as we started to look longer term critically at some of the results that Mayo has published, that Rush has published, you know, and what I saw in my own experience was they did well initially, but then started to, to fail at a later period of time, I think simply because the, the allograft just stretched out over time. And so long about that time was when from your institution with Arlen and James Brown, and then the follow-up work that you subsequently done in demonstrating a more simplistic and cost-effective measure with the Marlex mesh. That's really when we started adopting that as our technique. And that's really been my go-to for extensor mechanism reconstructions, both on the quad side and the patellar side for these patients. And I've been pretty happy with the results. We can kind of talk about, you know, the pros and cons of that as we get into this a little bit later. I, I will tell you, looking at this list, just two other comments, direct repair. And I think we'll all emphasize this. It doesn't work in these situations. It just doesn't work in these situations for lots of different reasons, poor tissue, poor vascularity, you know, not enough strength of the repair, things along those lines. And then lastly, I will say I, I am still intrigued by the extended gastroc flap, Yep. you know, mainly because of the vascularity and the tissue uh, that it brings into the area. You know, a little bit of my challenge is just trying to find someone to work alongside of me to be able to do that, to make it a more, you know, facile operation. We don't do our own gastroc flaps. Our plastics guys do it, right, mainly for skin coverage, soft tissue defects. But I am interested in that, and I'd be curious to hear, you know, what you guys' thoughts about. But for me right now, the go-to is a, is a Marlex mesh reconstruction. Uh, Brian, that was superb. And uh, let me just make a comment in my phone and go to you. So it was that follow-up paper from Rush and the whole extension mechanism allograph that really at five, six, seven, eight years, I had already been doing the Marlex mesh reconstruction, not repair, and I, we'll all highlight that. But it was that paper that actually is the one that swayed me to, I'm going to give a lead in to start revising the components and putting mm -hmm. increased constraints with the exact yeah. concept that they were lengthening out, probably because Michael, they got recurrent flexion instability or new onset de novo flexion instability because of the weak extensor. And then it repetitively cycled that whole extensor and it lengthened or tore. So I, that's funny that that's kind of where I got that thought from. And then just to follow up on your comment on extended gastroc, I'll come back to this later. I am very intrigued with it. I have used it and I've actually used it in conjunction with redo Marlex mesh and this, or when I need coverage and I have an extensor mechanism out. And interestingly enough, we do it from our tumor reconstructions. They do, it's a big goal for the patient and you burn yeah. the gastroc, but it is the results 
in our small series are remarkable in combination with the Marlins. Michael, uh, your thoughts based upon what Brian had mentioned and my, uh, my response to that? Yeah, I mean, my background's pretty interesting when you do your residency at Rush and your fellowship at Mayo and those are the two places that are published on extensive <laughs> mechanism construction, you come up with some, uh, some unique uh, perspectives. And to your point, Matt, the evolution was, you know, I didn't have to do in my first few years of practice any extensive mechanism reconstruction by the time I started having to do a lot of them for some weird reason. The evidence had already been shown. And I remember the Nice Society meeting that I was at when Aaron Rosenberg and Craig Delavalle and the Rush Group presented their longer term results on allograft. And it was horrible. And mm -hmm. so you could say that people were still debating it. But boy, once they presented their results and the failure rates, I had already done a few Marlex at that time. And I've never looked back because the Mayo results and the results that you publish have been, I would say, you know, if you look at statistical analysis, you're not going to be able to, you know, get up really large numbers, but your, yeah. your group has been as good, if not far superior. Okay. Let's take out the statistics, but just, you know, for the numbers we have without the complications, without having dead tissue, without the expense to Brian's point, this is a much cheaper, simpler operation. And so for me, it's a no brainer. I, I think the only answer on here, quite frankly, that the data would support in 2022 is a mesh implant reconstruction. And then we can get to the nuances of patelectomy that you now talked about, you know, full implant revision. But I think based on the rush data, and there's really not been great data in any other institution, I think a whole extensor mechanism allograft is too expensive, too fraught with complications to really warrant consideration in my mind. I mean, that's just what, based on the available data. And I, like I said, I did my residency at Rush, but once their data, they were doing more than anybody. And that was like seven years greater than 50% failure. I mean, yeah. they basically got up, got up in front of everybody and said, this doesn't work. It's horrible, right? This is like a horrible thing. So, you know, thanks to Mayo and the work that you guys have done, we've seen, an, uh, I think, a better solution for this and a simpler one for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think that's for, I think that's right. Is is it's simplistic, and we'll go over the technique. Um, if you follow the kind of stepwise approach, it's readily available, which I enjoy. So if you've got to add them on tomorrow or something, they have a catastrophic fall or something of that nature, and then you avoid the disease transmission. Interestingly enough, the cost differential is about forty five hundred dollars for extensor mechanism versus about sixty to hundred based upon your institution. So there's also kind of a cost benefit built yep. into there. Michael, I'm going to do one more thing with this one and have Brian comment. He already alluded to it. Um, both of you have said, and I, I will support as a third person, that in these extensor mechanism disruptions to avoid direct repair. And I think we would all agree that if it's acute, you're doing a primary total knee and a catastrophe happens, that would be the role for direct repair. But anything that's happened that's chronic or subacute, we want reconstruction over repair. And we're going to debate the reconstruction techniques, but repair should really be outside of the discussion in its entirety. Would you both agree with that for a uh, comment? Yeah. No question. Yeah. Direct repair in the acute setting though, it's plus or minus augmentation. I Even mean, that's like, plus or minus. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. So no doubt, I've, you know, you, you should probably consider, you know, harvesting a hamstring and augmenting if you can, or whatever, if you have a catastrophic in the time of the primary, <clears throat> you don't have to depend on the situation, but your point is a hundred percent correct, Matt, but yes. Acute is the only time you would even consider it. Everything else, it's augmentation. And, and I think, Matt, you know, some of the challenges 
we get with this, and I know you all do too, is you get the patient that's had one or two attempts at a primary repair, right? And they have, you know, a thousand ethabond in their tendon or in their quad and, you know, open wounds, or they get infected. I mean, that's the ultimate disaster, right? Is the, is the infection with the extensor mechanism disruption gone at the same time. So, you know, unfortunately, I think it still does happen. And I get it, right? It's a big deal to go through a, a reconstruction and it, and we all hope that the repairs work and it's relatively simple, you know, to do it, but the data just would not support that it's a worthwhile endeavor. Yep. Yep. It's classic. Uh, whenever you have two paths, pick the most difficult one, that's going to be the right one. And it's hard, even though there's acute settings, but you both brought it up, even in the acute settings, which I've had, and I've helped others with, I have augmented it and done the reconstruction because in my mind, with everything there, that's your best time to get it done with a reconstruction. So, all right. In the interest of time, I want to show the group the poll results from this one. And then we're going to go on to the next poll. So here are the results of over 500 people, uh, individuals, almost 600 on what they would do here. So if you chose extension mechanism reconstruction, what technique would you use? So basically no one said I would not chose the reconstruction. But then direct repair was 32%. I think the uh, Dr. Manigini and Dr. Springer have highlighted really nicely why we would not do a repair. If there's one thing that's ubiquitous to be shown to fail in the subacute and chronic, it's repair and even in the acute without some sort of augmentation. 20%, which I would say I'm surprised with, would utilize a mesh uh, reconstruction. Several still with the allograft, as you can see there. And then I've got to scroll down here for the scores here couple percent for the gas rock flap, which I actually am also supportive of. And then uh, 7% of you are quite honest. It says outside of my area of expertise, best if I don't vote or if I send it to Medellin and Springer. So, um, so that's kind of the so that was me. There. I voted. I, I'm the 7%. I voted. You voted to send it to me. Go to Mayo Clinic. You guys are great. So I think, uh, I think we, we talked about this one enough. I'll move on, but Suffice to say on this one, the three of us would do an extension mechanism, reconstruction, not repair. And of that reconstructive techniques, we would start with the Marlex mesh reconstruction and our back pocket in future or for vascularity, we may consider a gas rock flap, although very, very rare. Less than 4% of the Marlexes at Mayo Clinic end up getting a gas rock. So even within that capture net, it's pretty rare. Okay, the next question. I can't remember who I started with last time, but I'm going to start with Michael here because you're to my left. Uh, did I start with you last time, Brian? Yes, you did. Question? It's Michael's okay, turn. Okay, Michael, we're just going to start with this one. Okay, good. <laughs> That's good. That's good. There you I'm go. on the hot seat. Well. <laughs> so, okay, Michael, if you choose a revision or to do, revise the components with this, which components would you revise? So let's say you got a base plate that can go up to P, there's a CR, that you can go up to CS. Would you do that? Would you go to a PS? Uh, would you go to a various values constraint? Would you go to a hinge? Uh, or would you, not, would you not revise them? So let's just make this open, what we're going to do with the metal and plastic. For this case. Yeah so, yeah. so I think in general, it's kind of binary in my thought process. We're going to do like the Meneghini family, go big or go home. So either <laughs> you don't, either you don't do it, either you don't, I mean, either you've done the procedure, you know, the knees well balanced, well lined, or you, you know, you feel like you did a good job and you do a more, it's a more acute setting. You do a Marlex mesh isolated. Most of the situation greater than 85%. I'm revising both components. Number one, it's because I want to use an increased level of constraint. We're talking mm-hmm. varus valgus constraint 
or a hinge. Those are my only two options when I do these cases. Number two, I want access to the tibia. So I'm revising all components. I don't like doing tibia only in these settings because then I can't see the tibia. You need good access. So the femur's off, the tibia's out, and I have access to the tibia. Because I'm going to, I want, if I'm going to do a revision, I want good access to the tibia to get the mesh embedded perfectly as far as I can and solidly in the tibia with the reconstruction uh, of the tibial uh, stem and cement. So that's my thought process. So overwhelming majority is going to be all components. Okay. So I love that, Michael. So you highlighted three things I want to bring up. So number one, you talked about the benefit of actually the technique. So more robust fixation and easier when you place in the canal and you're revising the tibia. So that's, I think, a benefit. Number two, in a lot of these scenarios, you have some form of instability or some form of malalignment that you're playing into it. So you can do that. And then number three, and I think most important, we don't talk about it enough, is we are in salvage world. Once you have an extensor mechanism disruption, you are in a salvage situation and you want to do anything you can for both septic and aseptic prevention of failures to never be back there. And that includes stability, the extensor mechanism, PGI mitigation, all that. So for all the reasons you said, I fully agree. We will debate whether you go VVC or rotating hinge, but in general, you're getting something that looks perfect. Brian, other thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that, you know, listen, not, these are challenging problems. Not every single one of them is a home run, right? There are a percentage of these patients and your data shows us that'll have some lag associated yep. with it. And I think if they have less constrained components and they have that lag and that weak extensor, they're one of their biggest issues is that sense of instability and the feeling of instability, right? Where I think that that may be the ultimate benefit of a hinge in these patients, as you mentioned in the salvage situations is if it's not a home run, if they get any lag, if they get any residual quad weakness from these catastrophic injuries, I think having a hinge in there provides them with an internal splint, right? And maybe prevents a lot of these patients from needing to wear drop lock braces, you know, the rest of their life, if it does fail and there's not a salvage opportunity. I do, I think the comment about putting it inside the tibia is a really interesting one. You know, my, my question would be for, you know, would be for the failures that we've seen, has it typically been at the tunnel interface, you know, the classic way of describing it, the trough with the screw, mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. typically where the, the failure has been? There's no doubt it's more robust fixation putting it inside the canal and it's simpler and easier to do. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. If you're going to revise it, you definitely put them in. And then, I'm, you know, as I mentioned before, my threshold for revising these components, clearly in this one, with all the issues that you pointed out on the x-ray, no question, everything's coming out on this one in my mind. The question is the ones that look good. I'm starting to lean more towards even going to something that gives me an option of, a, of the highest level of constraint. Yeah, Brian, you bring up two incremental excellent points. So number one is what to do with, let's call it, you got a various valgus constraint, you did it. It's got stems up and down and cones in there. So those ones I'd say, and to Michael's point earlier, I've done it, I've got cones in there, I've got cemented stems, or they're referred in with something that I hate to see and we should never do is uncemented coupled offset stems that are cemented in place. So we know we're going to do so much more damage and they're already at mid-level to higher constraint. I'll think about that. 
that's kind yep. of one camp of it. And then the other one is, um, you know, this kind of internal splint. I think that's right. Because for these patients, instead of saying, hey, you need a walker and a drop lock brace if you have a little bit of lag, they can usually get by with just a cane, yeah. even if they have a continuous leg, because they have that stability in several <laughs> other planes to help them out with the functioning of that. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. I'm going to, let's do the poll on this one because we've got two more questions and I want to go through the images and I want to have a little discussion. So I'm just going to show what the panelists have seen. I haven't seen that, what the uh, 600 individuals said. So I would not choose revision knee. So 50% uh, of individuals with this, these x-rays would not revise it. 16% uh, would do the patella only because uh, it was dislodged, but they were, so they're going to revise that. 1% femur, 2% tibia. Femur and tibia, 6% in all components, 17. So let's add up femur and tibia with all components. Let's say only, to be honest with you, only uh, a fourth of the, the panelists said they would revise all components. Thoughts on that, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I think it represents an earlier evolution of thinking and what the science will ultimately show. As we've discussed over the last 15 minutes, they're not sitting in the discussions that we are and many of the people on the who are polling may not have the extent of revision practices that we do. And I think uh, hopefully one of the teaching points of this webinar will be that they come away with, with learning from our extensive experience in the situation and say, Hey, you know what, maybe I should consider revising both components for the reasons we've outlined enhanced joint stability, what the effect of the extensor mechanism disruption has on the tibiofemoral articulation. So hopefully there'll be some, uh, some changing of that, if we were to take this poll six months later, hopefully it'll be different. Yeah, I think that's well stated. I mean, I, I like seeing this. I like the debate and I, I like seeing that there's an opportunity for education and the you two as literally world experts in this topic and your thought processes and how all three of us separately have really kind of coalesced to a very similar thought process and for very similar reasons, but coming at it from three different, three other major institutions. So it's a good opportunity, if I could put it that way. So um, this is nicely tethered, but I wanted to untether because I, I suspected that three of us were going to revise the components, but we may have a little more debate. Brian, we're going to start with you. On, yeah. We've assumed that all three of us are going to revise the components, particularly for the reasons we discussed. And I spent a lot of time on the x-rays, that there were issues that we wanted to revise, even separate from the center mechanism. You're going to take everything out. You're going to put your construct of choice remaining industry neutral, how far are you going to march up the constraint totem pole for this particular patient? Yeah, it's right. So my, so your, your hesitancy is a rotating hinge construct in a 61 year old, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing that historically you would say, there's no way I'm putting a hinge in a 61 year old female, right? The longevity of that is just not going to be good, but I think that number one, our hinge constructs are better. We're better at doing mm -hmm. them. We have better longer term data. And I think to the point that you mentioned earlier, Matt, this is a salvage situation. Yep. Right. This is a salvage situation. I mean, in reality, these patients, they have one shot at this in my mind. I mean, sure, we've, had, we've all had failures and had to go back and redo them again. They're not as great as the first time through, just like most things that we do. But to me, this is a salvage situation. If I'm taking everything out, I am almost virtually leaning towards a hinge in these patients. Nowadays, again, that is not, I can sit here and, and honestly tell you that has not been my thought process throughout my career. This is something that's probably within just the last 
year or two, and a lot of it's because of discussions that I've had with you all and everyone else at other meetings that has changed my thought process on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's definitely been an evolution, I put it that way. And do you think, Michael, that the use of highly porous and 3D printed cones and sleeves and some sort of metaphyseal fixation has made us feel more comfortable utilizing rotating hinge in younger patients, even without extensor mechanisms that need it, and cases like this? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think we have the long-term data on the hinge mechanical devices in younger patients. I think there's some data. It's not great. But as we start to do them, what I, what I see happening, to your point, Matt, is I think our metaphyseal fixation will augment. So I don't think our failures will occur as much at the bone prosthesis yes. interface. Yes. You're going to have hinge devices. There's a lot of stress on those hinges in a 61-year-old, and fatigue failure will occur over time at what rate we don't know. I don't disagree with either one of you. What I'm trying to look back in my own series and my own experience is I've traditionally, if I've revised, done varus valgus constraint, a robust varus valgus constraint. All varus valgus constraints are not the same. I've done those and I've done hinges. What I wanna know is, have I really seen a difference? Now, I don't have the experience and the numbers that you do, Matt, and that's probably why the Mayo data is so critical and important in teaching us, but I, I'm trying to, I would probably lean, I certainly lean more towards hinge now than I have in the past, but I sometimes wonder if that's because we all talk about it so much. Yeah. And yeah. the ones that have failed, they do better with a hinge. So you're like, oh, okay, well they failed, but they have a hinge in there, right? So it's almost like <laughs> exactly. you're mitigating. And the other thing I would mention for people who are doing a hinge, many of the hinges have the opportunity to put a little bit of flexion in, these are the cases where you don't want to put flexion in because if the Marlex fails, the patients walk or doesn't you say they got a, you know, a lag that's 20 degrees. They walk by bringing their hip over their ankle and extending their knee a little bit. Now yeah. that's a lot of stress on a hinge. I mean, there's no doubt that's a, every time they slam that knee into extension, that's a lot of stress on the hinge aspect. Your point, sorry, I'm so long-winded answer to your original question, which is we've done better with the metaphyseal fixation it puts the stress back on the hinge part of the, of the joint. So I, you know, stay tuned. I don't disagree with you at all. It's an evolution. I think we're going to learn more with time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I, I even, even though I've been a strong advocate for the use of a hinge and then you, we're not going to get this debate right now, but then you'd start saying, what well, do you do a fixed hinge or is it a rotating yeah. hinge? Right. Yeah. You go down right. that path right. for a while, but yeah. I've been an advocate of that primarily because yeah. we're avoiding various Falcon stability, but I want to avoid that flexion that yep. frank flexion stability in the future with the trade-offs I know that are coming down the path. Okay. Yep. So I think in this particular one, you got to be thoughtful, but in this particular one for everything I've shown, I think it's fair to say that several of us on this panel here, which select a rotating hinge along with a Marlex mesh reconstruction. So I'm going to kind of summarize as this polls are pulling up the last three questions. So 55% uh, so more, so as they've gotten farther along in the poll, more people have decided not to revise. It's 50% than the last one, 14% are going to PS. Yeah, I'm scaring them, <laughs> which means you're going to do some sort of revision, right? Because that's a CR femur, uh, 10%. These, they, they must do everything here. Rotating hinge. Okay. Making some progress there. 12% and then outside my area expertise referred to Meningini and or Springer 5%. Okay. So interesting, again, uh, apropos to our previous question, it's helpful opportunities 
for knowledge and kind of the thought processes and why we would revise and why several of us are thinking towards revision to a hinge. There's one more poll question, then we'll get to what I did on this one. And I think this is super important. Mike, oh, we're going to start with you. I always say to my patients, the first, it's three surgeries. The first surgery is the actual Marlex mesh reconstruction. The second surgery is a painful immobilization period. And the third surgery is the remobilization period. And actually, for me, the first one's almost become the easiest one, actual surgery, getting them through the immobilization and remobilization has become difficult. So what's your thought processes on how you immobilize them, how long you immobilize them, and how you remobilize them? Well, as you know, I have a long history about this. When we did all the casting at Mayo Clinic and I went out to practice on my own and tried to do that, and my whole staff had a mutiny because <laughs> they're like, why are we casting people in our clinic, <laughs> our busy clinic? And I was used to the awesome cast techs at Mayo Clinic. So I would tell you that if you can choose great casting, that's ideal. It's the best form of immobilization. If you can't and you don't have the Mayo Clinic resources, you know, we've published this in Journal of Arthroplasty, it's acceptable to use a good immobilizer changing over to a well-fixed hinge knee brace. I saw two of these in my clinic today. It tells you how many of that I do. Then both of them were immobilized and then we converted them today to their hinge knee brace to let them start gradually progressing. And they both, we, our results have shown they do quite well with the same like nine degree lag on average. And I think that that's acceptable, but the immobilization is critical to your point, Matt. I think part of that, Michael, is you're also a very diligent physician in addition to surgeon. So I'm certain that you say, hey, this isn't a cast, but you've got to wear this full time. Oh, yeah. Keep the leg immobilized. Do not yep. remove it. So I think that education portion of it is yeah. probably essential That's if right. you're going to go down that path. And tell me before we go to Brian, what's the length of time that you immobilize an extension? Today, today, both those patients were eight weeks. They were eight weeks totally immobilized. And then we start the process. It depends on the patient, what their history was. One of the patients I saw today had an open wound. There was a resection, some of the stuff that Brian and I have reported on, resection with a two-stage, and it was a Marlex with a hinge and a reimplant. That was eight weeks total, no questions asked. And the day we converted her over to a, a hinge. So most people, it's eight weeks cast, and then we start gradually doing 10 degrees per week in terms of uh, motion. Okay, good. Thank you, Michael. Brian, how about you? What do you mobilize with? How long? I'm a little disappointed. I thought Manigini was take a harder line stance on the anti-casting, <laughs> but he kind of he kind of waffled there a little bit. He kind of waffled there, but but <laughs> but but he's exactly right. It's the, it's the resource issue with casting. I mean, there's no question about it. And, and look, the cast is not a benign issue for these patients yeah, true. at yeah. all. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, I have tried. I wish I had pictures of every different concoction for somebody's foot and heel that I've tried yeah, over right. my career, you know, egg crate, diapers. I mean, everything, you name it, we shove in there to try and, you know, keep them from getting heel ulcers and not diapers. I saw your reaction. I say really, pampers but, and huggies. But, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I but, just, but it's, <laughs> it's not a benign issue for them, right? That's and right. you got a window it That's so you right. can look at their wound and we've had full thickness heel ulcers and we have to, I mean, I've had, I've had some patients that wear one cast for three months and I've had some patients that come in once a week to get a change for three months, right? Mm. It's a, it's a big deal for these patients. But I do think to Michael's point, if they were equal, then I think cast immobilization, because there are people at every corner that are trying to mess up this operation, you know, yep. for you in some way or another has been my experience. So 
I am to summarize it. I'm, I'm three months in a, in a long leg cast. And then I put them in a hinge brace, a hinge knee brace. And I tell them you're going to be three months in a cast and it's going to take you three months to start bending your, your knee once you go into the hinge knee brace. And I write out very prescriptive instructions <laughs> for the therapist. I let them go zero to 30 degrees in advance every two weeks until they get past 90. And then I let them take the brace off. But the biggest thing that I found is you can't let the therapist do passive flexion with them, right? You That's can't right. have a therapist in there yeah. cranking their knee, trying to bend it. They got to do it on their own with gravity and active uh, flexion and extension, not a therapist in there saying, oh, we're going to get your knee to 90 and they're cranking it and they're stretching, they're stretching things out. So yeah, I do, I do three months in a cast and then three months getting their knee bending again. Now, I, I don't disagree with you, Brian, to the point that you just mentioned. I haven't used a cast in 10 years. It's been yeah. immobilizer, hinge knee brace. And we published our results, and I think they were yep. perfectly acceptable. Agree. Again, one, one of our initiatives, one of our reasons for publishing that was to show that if you don't, if you're not fortunate to have the resources of the Mayo Clinic with cast techs that have been skilled for 30 years, it doesn't mean that you can't do this operation and treat the patient appropriately. So I think it can be done. It may not be the top of the line ideal. You may not have any pampers or huggies to put on their heel, but you can certainly put an immobilizer <laughs> in a hinge knee brace. Yeah, maybe some yeah. disposable, uh, non-disposable diapers. So, um, all right, so that's that's a nice discussion. And uh, Michael Bryan highlighted the germane points. What I would say is, so I do cast them because we are fortunate that we've got cast techs with you know decades of experience. But it is a big lift, even with that it cast is. tech, because it's every two weeks. I used to go three. I had a couple of issues. Now it's every two weeks. It's taking it off, putting it back on. And we think it's a big lift for the cast techs. What about the patients that are typically driving hundreds yeah. of miles to sit in the cast room, to have it cut off, to put another one on for 12 seconds? Is your heel okay? Is the wound okay? And put it on. So those are things. So I would say that the length of immobilization is key. So I believe in three months of that and three months of remobilization or some extended period of time. We do use cast, but I will tell you, I've been a dope recently a couple of times. I had a BMI 59 and a diabetic. I put a cast on. I saw him in two weeks, kill wow. ulcer. And that's recent. Yeah, of course. But, but these are the things that like, you get into the- It's like casting a rate. triangle. How are you going to cast a triangle? <laughs> it doesn't even work. And as soon as the swelling goes down, it's sliding on it. I mean- It was a straight see, now, rectangle, now you're actually. You're it was a straight rectangle. <laughs> see, Springer, you're getting me going now. I think um, <laughs> I th I was trying to remain calm about the cast, but I think they are horrible. It gives me like nauseated feelings to think about cast right now on these people. I'm going to cast you at the revision course next week. I'm going to put a cast on you, a prophylactic one. <laughs> All right. So let's look at the full question. So 8% aren't going to operate. Five are not going to mobilize. And, you know, let's just get to the big numbers here. So 33%, a third will brace for five to six weeks. So Michael, up your alley, but you're bracing longer. 20% uh, will brace for greater than six weeks. And then the cast, ooh, you guys do not yep, like the they, cast. They, huh? they, they, they do not like the cast. Nope. Don't this like is it. really intriguing. Really intriguing. Okay. So let's move forward and see what we did just in the interest of time and facilitating it. So I'm going to show you a series of intraoperative rated, uh, intraoperative features, excuse me. And then I'll show you the post-op room. So this is on exposure. Let me orient you to the left of your screen is the patient's head to the right are the toes. And you can see there is a sterile tourniquet on, which what I'll do is I'll do most of the procedure, i.e. the revision part of the procedure, 
the first two thirds of the extensor mechanism mobilization, and then I'll put that tourniquet down and finish it. So that's a sterile tourniquet on, I'll come up here, I'll extend the incision later, usually to the top of that tourniquet. You could see that sheared off patellar button through the patellar tendon with, interesting enough, you can see the redundant tissue here with symptomatic lengthening in this particular patient. So that's on exposure. Um, we end up doing a rotating hinge, a re revision of both components and going to a rotating hinge. And so I'll show those on the x-rays, but I want to focus this on the Marlex mesh. So at this portion right here, what we're doing is we are taking the Marlex mesh, which is folded on itself eight to 10 times, unitized with a single non-absorbable suture. And I've got a 19 millimeter osteotome in which I'm placing five centimeters of that. That's other benefit both Brian and Michael highlighted earlier with the canal. You could put it right in the canal and you could put more than just that two and a half centimeters that we traditionally did. I'll now put five to six centimeters in there. And in this particular case, and you'll see the post-op x-rays, people always ask, what about the cone? So I've got cone in there that's up against the bone. I've got cement down in the canal. I've got cement on the epiphysis. Then I'll place the Marlex mesh, which I've pre-dipped in cement in there. And then I'll come in with my revision base plate. And I'll basically put the Marlex mesh in line with the tibial tubercle of the crest. That's what I use as my landmark for this. And I do my rotation the same for that. Let me uh, just get through the pictures and we can come back, ask questions. And there's the revision base plate that's going to come in. And you'll see that you've got some of the Marlex up against that base plate. And this is some of my early failures before I modified the technique in which you'll see, I'll take, I'll do a coronal split in the patellar tendon and get it underneath here so that it's covered nicely. And then what you're seeing here now is that's cemented in place. We have the rotating hinge cemented in place and you can see that coronal split now in the post patellar tendon. So you've got the superficial portion, the deep portion, you can see I'm bringing that underneath. So here's my assistant. Here's me, I'm gonna close these on top of each other. And then I'm gonna get dorsal and ventral all the way up to where the mesh is coming out of the tibia, host bloody vascularized patellar tendon. I'll close that there. And then we do our pants over vest reconstruction up here in which the lateralis is deep, the mesh is on top. And I've went to just four sutures now because those will be pretty robust. Then the medialis mobilized. You can see that sterile tourniquet I mentioned earlier which used to be end right here is now off because I needed to pull down the tissue. I've extended my incision. I've mobilized my medialis and lateralis. It's something I wanted to show specifically here is sometimes now I will intentionally do a lateral release because I can't pull my medialis and lateralis down. So my key is to get muscle coverage of that mesh in continuity. And let's see on the post-op x-rays in a second. I did a paddleectomy and I'm going to show you the x-rays real quick and we'll come back to it. I did a paddleectomy. And the reason I did that paddleectomy is it allows me to come straight up. As both Dr. Manigini and Dr. Springer know from learning this technique, originally from the innovator who deserves credit, Dr. Arlen Hansen, we used to, when you had the patellar button, which is here, you used to weave up around and try to still get soft tissue coverage. And now this allows me, I say, pull enclosure. The pull is the direction I want it. It's right out of the tibia, in continuity with the host patellar tendon, in continuity with the medialis and lateralis and closure. That's the other thing that we got burned on for the first five to 10 years of this is that you didn't get the mesh covered, you had wicking, and then they have, ended up having a pretty prohibitively high rate of wound drainage for sure. And then periprosthetic joint infections. So let me just show the x-rays and we can go back and look at, talk about the interops. So here's the uh, post-operative radiographs. You can see that tibial cone, the mesh is in there, stem, stem, and cement is my preference for immediate rigid fixation. 
And then you can see that cone. Interesting enough, you can kind of see a little bit of that mesh coming right out here, as you can see there. So with that, I'll uh, just open it up. Michael, we'll start with you. Kind of criticisms, good, bad, different. How would you do it? What are your tips and tricks? No, I think that's an expert technique demonstration, Matt. I mean, you've clearly got the most experience of, uh, of all of us, and as does Mayo. And I think you highlighted all the key points. I, I think we're all leaning towards doing a patelectomy more than we used yeah. to. The patella is frequently fragmented in pieces, and it turns out when you get rid of the whole thing, as we've sort of learned, as we've learned by accident, really, when you have to yes. take it, those patients did really well, and you could close it a lot better. You're like, why are we not doing that every time? So, uh, you know, it's been an evolution, but I think it's resulted in better patient outcomes for the reasons you, you mentioned. Yeah, and that patelectomy, it's funny, to the paper that you and Brian wrote together, it was interesting. In our series, some of the best patients were two-stage exchange ones that I had been doing that also had an extensive mechanism disruption that I was doing a hinge for the bony and soft tissue collateral ligament portion. And a gentleman who had an infected patella ORIF I took out and all of a sudden I was re-implanting him and it was the easiest marks I had ever done. Yeah. And it's funny how sometimes we learn by just iterating in those procedures. And that was the first one I said, well, I'm going to try it again. And I took off the tele and it was great. And so that's, that's kind of how that's evolved. And I think as every time someone jumps in and says, does a paddle like me, okay, I'm going to bite on it. You say, why was I keeping that in the first place? You know, Brian, your yeah. thoughts on the totality yeah, of what it, I've shown? Oh, the phenomenal technique, Matt, you outlined it really well, but I mean, the, the paddle, uh, not to harp on it, how important it is, but I mean, you look at your last picture there, your next picture, right? Historically, when you kept the patella, you never saw that, right? You, you had, had a big gap large, right, here, right? You had a big gap right there and a large bulky piece of the mesh that kind of made, always made that awkward turn, you know, around the patella and then running it up over the vastus lateralis that was never great for anchoring and it left a lot of it uncovered. So, I mean, this looks, this looks great. I, I was curious, have you or Michael seen any different challenges, whether it's a patellar tendon rupture or a quad tendon rupture, as far as do you do anything different from a technique perspective? It's a really good question. I, I have, but uh, Michael, I want you to comment on, you know, this one, I clearly had tissue. There's a catastrophic yeah. disruption, but I had tissue, so I can make this work. It's going to be work, but I can make this work. But sometimes, Michael, on those quad ones where it's just totally, yeah. <clears throat> totally ratty and it's like sewing like, tissue paper to Kleenex, you know? Yeah, I think those those proximal quad disruptions, Brian, to your point and to what Matt described, you, when you, if you get a high quad when you're up at the muscular tendinous junction, it, it is a really tough repair because you're, a tr you, you know, you can get the mesh on top of the quad tendon and then you're running out of gas. You're sewing muscle, trying to overlap the muscle to it. Those are the hardest ones. And quite frankly, Matt, you'd have to elucidate. I, you'd have to rec I can't recall the specifics of your most recent publication, but in the original, the quads didn't do as well as the patella tendons. But I don't know if, the, if your modern data differentiated those out quads versus patellas. Yeah, it's a good question, Michael. We did, and they did similar. And I think a couple of things that pushed us forward in regards to it was number one, taking sometimes the IT band, like taking more, on the lateralis side and bringing it over with those patients. And number two, as you can see here, and that's why I like this one is, I've actually, most of the time I actually leave that fascia, superficial fascial rind of the medialis and lateralis with the soft tissue flaps, because these are huge soft tissue flaps. And those ones I'll actually leave that on there 
and do something again we usually don't do. I'll actually take a layer of sub Q and bring that over to give me something that's a little more robust to put in there. But those are the ones, Brian, to your comment earlier, that I believe that the gas rock is actually, if you can mobilize appropriately, and it's a little lower, when it's too proximal, it's too proximal. But if, you could, if they're a little lower and you're kind of like superior aspect of the, of the patella and you can mo- get some soft tissue in there, that's helpful. Yeah, great point. So that's, uh, that's kind of uh, all I got. I think that's uh, been pretty robust discussion on, on the topic. I want to uh, first ask uh, Michael, is there anything that we didn't cover that you thought might be helpful for the, uh, the group? No, I think, it, I think it was very comprehensive. Uh, I think we covered all the salient points of the decision-making around the reconstruction, whether we take the components out, the newer evolution of pedalectomy and the benefits of that hinge. I think it's appropriate, the mobilization. And I'll give my final plea for not using a cast if you don't have to. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Brian, any last words of wisdom? No, I think this is going to be great for further discussion at the at the ICGR revision course next week. And, uh, you know, maybe Matt also highlight your technique article that on JBJS, you know, I think that's worthwhile for people, you know, answering the polls who maybe didn't pick the mesh reconstruction. I think it's, uh, you know, there's really nice illustrations that you guys have. There's a really nice video technique. I think it's, I think it's teachable and reproducible. Unlike I think really the allograph, you know, I think you guys have done such a phenomenal job of teaching people how to do this. Yeah. Thanks, Big Brian. Point. Thank you, Michael. Um, so I, I want to uh, give a sincere thanks to uh, my two really good friends and panelists, Dr. Michael Manigini and Dr. Brian Springer. Thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules to do this webinar uh, with me. I'd like to also thank Ortho Bullets and the entire ICGR board of directors for the opportunity. And as both Dr. Manigini and Dr. Springer pointed out, I just want to encourage you all to attend the ICGR revision course in Rochester. This will be our ninth annual course. And if you can't attend it, uh, we will have the video option available for that, in which you'll be able to view that in OrthoBullets as well as ICGR site, or the 10th annual course, which will be 2023 in Rochester, Minnesota as well. So with that, thank you, Michael, from the depths of my heart. Thank you, Brian, from the depths of my heart. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to a, a great course this year. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt.